know he has certain ways of thinking about how the world should work when he uh, authorizes his own version, of course, of the Bible here. But we live in a society that is arguably one of the quote-unquote most audaciously privileged societies that ever existed. That this is not some sort of new manifestation because of a new a millennial generation or a generation X or a generation Y or whatever nonsense we're being told by prior generations or the media or whatever. We are founded upon unfounded privilege. We have this giant like session where we all like massage our egos about the freedom they found here or whatever it is. But in reality, the founding is a business venture, right? So why does Disney in this case turn this into a romantic story when we know it wasn't and B, if it had been, gross. And of course we know, again, fast forward to 2019, you cannot have infinite growth in an economic system on a finite planet. The answer is because they were fully infected with the spirit of capitalism already, and they were a company that was there to seek profit. Well, the mercantilist, proto-capitalist mindset says we all have equal opportunity. Nonsense. It wasn't that way from the get-go. Welcome to the Myth is America podcast on the Revolution and Ideology channel. Uh, my name is Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are in episode two. Last uh, last episode we talked about, of course, the quote-unquote discovery of the new world by Christopher Columbus and what actually happened, and we dunk, debunked uh, some mythology there using primarily pri uh, uh, primary source work by the priest Bartolome de las Casas and his interpretation of what happened regarding the ethnic cleansing of the Taino in the Caribbean. Anyway, it was a good podcast, good episode, good way to get started. Uh, I don't think we blew a lot of minds uh, regarding the Columbus mythology there most people knew it was a it was kind of a bunk myth but regardless we're going to keep moving here and uh we're going to move right past kind of spanish colonization because this this episode is meant to emphasize uh the u.s historical narrative here so while columbus and his fellow conquistadors or his uh the conquistadors that ended up succeeding him the Coronados and the Pizarros and the Cortezes and so on and so forth that would be for a different different podcast mostly regarding latin american history for us, we are going to now jump into English colonization, um, again, being a little bit more relevant towards the foundation of the United States. And we want to pick up with one of the first uh, myths uh, right off the bat, and that is the mythology of the English settlers that end up in Virginia. Now, technically, Jamestown will be like what we're emphasizing here and in, 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 in Virginia tobacco farming and so on and so forth. That's what we're going to be talking about. Most listeners, or at least I assume a lot of listeners know, Jamestown isn't technically the first uh, English colony. There's a couple others, Roanoke being the most famous, but it's the first real lasting, like, legacy. So we are going to focus on Jamestown. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. In fact, I'm spending no time. Roanoke was a thing. Cool. Croatan was carved. Got it. We're going to focus on Jamestown. And, of course, it's called Jamestown. Let's kick right off because James I is king in England. Um, and uh, I want to actually pause for just a second because Nick uh, has a pretty cool interpretation of James uh, James's ego because he does, in a different class we teach, a complete lecture on James and his perceived uh, self-righteousness uh, and intellect. So I want Nick to chime in just to paint like a brief picture of who this king of England is, like super fast. Yeah. I mean, I guess to give him some credit, the king that is, he's one of the only kings for a while, at least in England that was in Scotland, um, that was a scholar himself. He became king when he was incredibly young. I think he was like 13 months old when his mom died. So he was put under the tutorship of someone I can't remember off the top of my head. And so 
he basically was just being educated for his entire life until he became old enough to take over the kingship. And he wrote books himself on um, witchcraft, etc., all kinds of different things. But then he took that further when he became king and the divine right of kings started to be challenged by various uh, forces. And so he wrote some books on divine kingship to try to solidify that amongst the people. And one of the things that I like to talk about specifically in the ideology class, and it will definitely come up because I'll bring it up later when we're talking about some other topics, this concept of the Stoic subject. And so one of his theories is that a tyrannical king is sent to the people uh, based on uh, as a punishment to the people. And so if you want to uh, get a king that is not tyrannical, then what you need to do is pray to God to receive a non-tyrannical king. And that's the only acceptable way that you can, quote-unquote, resist a tyrannical kingship. So these are the types of things that James was writing. We call him an authoritarian. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Anyway, so he's intellectual. He's an intellectual authoritarian uh, and has had some very interesting feelings about the way the world should work. And it it definitely – I mean, again, we know he has certain ways of thinking about how the world should work when he uh, authorizes his own version, of course, of the Bible. Uh, So that that speaks a little bit about this man's hubris. Anyway, uh, tied to hubris, one of the things that he really wanted to do or what England wanted to do was to uh, get in on the colonial exploits uh, that some of the other uh, kingdoms and entities, I don't want to say nation states, they weren't nation states yet, had already began to exploit. So just like we talked about in the last episode where Spain was feeling a little bit jealous of the Italian city-states going through the Renaissance and all the material culture they were able to create and benefit from because of their trade uh, in the Mediterranean with other societies, more advanced societies, and their ability to get like commodities and things like luxury items was, um, we talked about it already, but, and France had already gotten on board, although I'm skipping France for right now. England wants to compete now uh, because the Italian city-states kind of got this thing rolling. Then we see Portugal getting it going regarding, of course, their trade along the West African coast and eventually in India. And, of course, as we talked about in the last episode, the Portuguese can be uh, thanked or damned, I should say, for starting the transatlantic slave trade. And then, of course, Spain jumps in when they, again, quote-unquote, discover uh, the new world. And the Colombian exchange is bringing them a vast amount of wealth and status, and France and England want in. France ends up going north into what is now, of course, Canada through numerous explorations, uh, and they even get started with a little bit of a fur trade. The Dutch also end up uh, getting involved in going north, but right now we're going to emphasize the English. James wants in, and one of the things that he thinks uh, he can exploit is this untapped, just beautiful, pristine, resource-rich continent of North America. Um, And the irony there is we know what I just said is untrue. There were already millions upon millions upon millions of people living here. And even though they weren't exploiting it the way Europeans thought they should be exploiting it, they were using it. They were living it. They were living in in mostly, not always, but mostly sustainable cultures, especially along the Atlantic seaboard. Doesn't mean that was always the case. Uh, historians that may be listening to this will know that Cahokia, uh, the mound builders, the Mississippian cultures, maybe even the Aztecs of the South were not necessarily completely sustainable or reciprocal in their relationships with other humans or with the natural world, but a good portion of the indigenous peoples living here were. 
Um, the reason I'm emphasizing this, and, he, and this is where uh, historical sources kind of go different ways depending on what story those historical sources are trying to tell. Uh, around the 1900s, historical sources posited that there were only about 2 million indigenous peoples in all of North America. And a lot of people still hold on to that because it makes them feel less bad about the genocide uh, that, that took place over the uh, following couple of centuries. But in reality, uh, most sources now have that number much higher, like much higher, like probably closer to 100 million indigenous peoples of numerous uh, different language groups, different types of social organization, different nations. Some didn't even identify as nations. Some remained tribal. Regardless, there were millions of people all living on North America and had a very advanced society and what we would call civilization. And it's important for us to understand that because the people that show up would not call them quote unquote civilized. And it's one of the excuses they used for treating them uh, the way they were or, or the way they did and the way arguably we still do. So anyway, James feels like he want, he feels like he wants to get in on this colonial exploitation that all the other European entities are involved in. So in 1606, a company is founded back in England. It is the Virginia Company. Um, and James I, again, gives them a land grant in North America. This comes back to the hubris. This man who had not been here, who did not know the complexity of all of the peoples that lived here, has the audacity to grant a company land he has no claim over. Here's the funny thing. He doesn't even have claim over it. If we just remove the indigenous angle for just a second, the Native American angle for just a second, he doesn't even have claim over it regarding uh, the European entities. Technically, this land would be Spanish land. So he's infringing upon Spanish land. So not only is he breaking with his fellow Europeans in this regard, he's completely, of course, disregarded the indigenous people that already live here. And again, this speaks to the hubris. I want to, uh, I want to pause for a second. Like, why? How, how can you do this? We talked about the Columbus going around planting like uh, 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 royal flags on every island he landed on. Well, this is the same thing. This guy's not even here, and he is just basically claiming land. What's wrong with this guy's mentality? I mean, I, it's not just him, I'm, right? It's like the, that era and the colonial enlightenment, etc. Like European Christian humanist, it's all tied into this manufactured stratification of human beings where very clearly he views himself at the top and has a claim to land that as you said is a it's already populated b even if it wasn't populated it would be spain's land just complete disregard for anything and again the reason we're emphasizing this is because i don't know that i'm shocking any of the listeners here but we live in a society that is arguably one of the quote-unquote most audaciously privileged societies that ever existed. And we want our listeners to understand that this is not some sort of new manifestation because of a new a millennial generation or a generation X or a generation Y or whatever nonsense we're being told by prior generations or the media or whatever. We are founded upon unfounded privilege uh, right off the bat. And of course, here's the second component to this. Jamestown beating Plymouth to the punch, and we will be doing an episode, of course, on Plymouth uh, in the future, probably after the episode on Bacon's Rebellion, but regardless, um, what I want to focus on, this founding is by a company. 
The reason I emphasize this is because we like the more romantic story of discussing these pilgrims seeking religious freedom, and we have this giant, like, session where we all, like, massage our egos about the freedom they found here, or whatever it is, but in reality, the founding is a business venture. And of course, uh, to quote the Wu-Tang Clan, in a society where cash rules everything around me, cream, we have a founding story that seems to rationalize that. It seems to justify it. What do you think of that? I mean, yeah, very clearly, like you said, we like to romanticize that they were seeking religious freedom and they were escaping persecution and they came and founded this new and free and so inclusive land, which is absolute nonsense. They came here to make money. Yeah, that whole story is bullshit. Yes, there were individual pilgrims and we will give them their quote unquote just due in a future episode. But even in that example, the Massachusetts Bay Company comes only about a decade after and changes the game anyway. So uh, I want to emphasize Virginia Company. This is a business venture. Um, And again, I get that company can, at least in, in, in... uh, 17th century English mean just any collection of men, but they have invested. They've invested monetarily, and this is where we get the word from. Although I wanted that's absolutely not true because the Virginia company was an official company with a company charter, etc. Well, I know, but I'm just trying to debunk the okay. the, the, the numerous students. Well, the, what I've had in class students, oh, company didn't mean that. They were just like a collection of guys. Like I, I, I yeah, get But that. in this case, yes. it does. It's a company. It is a company yeah. here to make money, 100%. So in, on April 26, 1607, three boats. In this case, it's not the, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. It is the Susan Constant, the Discovery, and the Godspeed. I want wonder why we don't have to memorize those three boats like we have to memorize the the ones I just mentioned. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Anyway. All right. These three boats bring 144 uh, Virginia Company Brits uh, to the Chesapeake Bay area. Now, the Chesapeake Bay, of course, in Virginia, uh, is a is a great location, right? It's it's not only great for the the soil and the surroundings and the quote unquote untapped natural resources, but it is harbored a little bit by uh, the weather uh, that would be coming in, blowing off the Atlantic, and of course, it is connected to numerous river systems, which were the trade network or the trade highways of of the 17th century. So it was a good locale. Unfortunately, it is heavily populated for all the reasons um, that I already mentioned. And I won't go through every First Nation name, but they are all uh, Algonquin-speaking uh, tribes or nations. And one of the ones that I kind of I, I want to focus on would be uh, the most famed because of a, a Disney film, uh, the Powhatan. And it's not just the Powhatan, but immediately upon trying to settle there, the uh, English or the Virginia Company is actually attacked. The reason I think this is interesting is because if we rewind uh, just over a hundred years, that is not what happened to Columbus. The Taino Arawak uh, welcomed him, and and even later on when Cortez showed up on mainland uh, Mexico and Central America, uh, again, the same thing. It wasn't an immediate attack. The reason I emphasize this immediate attack by these various uh, Algonquin-speaking nations is because it's actually verification and proof that news traveled and it shows the complexity of society on the continents before Europeans showed up which is something that Europeans argued they didn't have right but the fact that it took a hundred years after a hundred years there likely had been messengers saying hey big ass boats show up on your coast littler boats come close and people are wearing like metal and have sticks that go boom you they are not coming as friends anymore that is not a thing 
That's not a thing. And again, it's not just because of the uh, because of the Spanish uh, in the south. Uh, again, the French have already been making headway through Canada, uh, as have the Dutch. So again, it's not necessarily completely from the south. That message could be coming from the north as well. But regardless, societies that had uh, more or less been showing a welcoming attitude towards outsiders are now no longer showing that attitude. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, they straight up learned their lesson, you know. Obviously, the news have traveled like exactly like you said. If they show up, it's not here to make friends, and you need to respond accordingly. And of course, this is where we get the very famous, again, Disney rendition of this story, where Powhatan, uh, the primary sachem of this group, uh, eventually relents on the attacks and uh, performs a ceremony, a ceremony that is meant to welcome the British under the guidance, of course, of, of course, of John Smith into their basically circular reciprocity based society. It is just a ceremony to most, of course, indigenous sor- sources posit that John Smith's life was never in any danger. This was an adoptive practice where merely the threat meant that John Smith is being welcomed, the threat of death in this case, being welcomed into Powhatan's circle and that the British are now part of his family. And of course, Pocahontas serves to save him. And the whole thing is, is a ritual that had been done before long in, with, regarding other indigenous tribes long before the British had showed up. The other thing, of course, that Disney gets wrong is we're myth-busting, which, again, this isn't a shocker. Most people know Pocahontas is is, is not – the story of Pocahontas has been highly massaged. Is Pocahontas the age gap, right? Like she is a very young girl, like preteen, and John Smith uh, is in his late, late 20s, early 30s. I don't have it in front of me. But at this point, like they did not have a romantic relationship. Now, real quickly, as we beat up on, on Disney for a moment here, and you're like, well, of course Disney got it wrong. They're just Hollywood. But I must pause for a second. We're trying to deconstruct the way history is learned in this country. And whether you, whether our listeners are willing to admit it or not, more people learn their history now through, of course, popular culture than they do through their K-12 through system. So Pocahontas, if you, we did a man-on-the-street quiz, Jimmy Kimmel style, most people would quote the Pocahontas story from Disney, not what they learned in some textbook they never read because they were too busy playing Fortnite. So that's that. it does need to be debunked, right? So why does Disney, in this case, turn this into a romantic story when we know it wasn't and B, if it had been, gross? Why do you think they did that? <laughs> I mean, I think it serves two functions. A, it sells movies and merchandise. B, it functions to paint a glossy whitewashed picture of American history. Wow, look at this, like, multicultural thing. Like, everybody can get along. Like, diversity, PC, man. Like, no. Like, no. That's not a thing. And the funny thing is Disney could have chose actual stories where Europeans and indigenous individuals did get along. There's numerous – Roger Williams would be an example. Uh, there was a Dutch trader named Van Curler who had an excellent relationship with the Iroquois League of Peace and Power. There were other examples where this actually went down. The Pocahontas story is not one of them because Pocahontas eventually is enslaved and forced to marry a, a very wealthy tobacco farmer named John Rolfe. She ends up back in England, gets sick, sick, gets sick and dies at a ridiculously young age, 21, 22, 23, somewhere in that zone. And it, not a very happy life for Pocahontas. But, of course, Disney doesn't really give us that story, and we want to feel good about this foundation. They need anyway. a Disney film that's like Pocahontas, the later years. And then it just I think they made up. a second one. Some of my students tell me – I never watched the second one. I'll be blunt. Shit. I never watched the first one. But, again, through popular cultural osmosis, I know the story. Anyway, they made a second one, but I guess it still isn't like 
it completely correct and i don't have the patience to sit through it so it was one of those shitty disney straight to video ones that like didn't make it to the yeah all right anyway um okay so as we're kind of moving forward here we understand that that john smith and the british are kind of welcomed i also want to emphasize here just to just the way i would even in a classroom that this is not just two groups of people that don't speak the same language and they're having difficulty understanding each other in that regard. These are groups of people that ideologically speaking fundamentally see the world completely different. They don't even understand the mentality of the other. Now, I don't have time to do an entire lesson right now in this podcast about like circular mentality and reciprocity and sustainability and all the things that had informed many of the Atlantic Coast First Nations. But it, one one thing that kind of really i think drives it home and hopefully we'll get these pictures at least up on the the youtube uh uh cast here of this of uh, you youtube version of this podcast is the uh the way they actually live their lives is relevant in artists renditions of their villages so paul hatan's village first and foremost from an again an artist at the time and descriptive or descriptions of the time that informed an artist is in the form of a circular again and then around the circular there is a central fire where everybody comes together and it is a very re reciprocity based uh looking village and then outside of course of the circular where all the structures are the structures look like longhouses and the longhouses are not necessarily meant for just nuclear families they are meant for like matrilineal lines so numerous people living in there and of course all sharing a central fire within the longhouse it's very community based and then outside of course of this circular uh, circle of longhouses is not really a fence it's just a small barricade of sticks more or less meant to keep like animal life out so it's not meant to like keep no human would be kept out um, by this, uh, I forget the actual term for this, but basically by this fence of sticks. It's meant to keep out animal life, probably to protect some food. Um, and there are two openings, one at the top and one at the bottom of the circle. Now, again, it's a relatively welcoming, uh, uh, image. If we contrast that to what the English would found after, of course, they are, uh, more or less adopted and saved by Powhatan, um, we have Jamestown. And when I say adopted and saved, we have to keep in mind, like, you know what? These people were Virginia company investors. They didn't have a lot of skills in founding a new society. They didn't know, of course, what could grow in North America or in Virginia. They didn't know, of course, how they could survive. So it is Powhatan that basically saves their skin, right? They would have died or maybe dispersed, just like a prior colony like Roanoke. It is Powhatan's choice to save them. Now, why he made that choice, historians, of course, debate. One of the reasons is he might have had rivalries with other groups, and he thought he could use this new uh, uh, relationship with the English to bolster his numbers and, of course, use some of the cool European goods and tools they brought, uh, uh, you know, steel or weaponry, uh, to deal with his rivals. The, those are all theories that are out there, and, and probably some of them are, are actually true. But regardless, one of the things we have to emphasize is when they're established and once the actual land that Jamestown is founded upon is ceded by Powhatan, the way they structure, again, this is now taking physical space, like monumentality, physical space representing the values of our society. The first thing they do at Jamestown is they build big ass walls in the shape of like a triangle, which is the symbol, if, if you've listened to some of our other podcasts or watched some of our other videos, is the symbol of hierarchy. Right. So rather than circle where there's no hierarchy right off the bat, Jamestown is a society predicated on hierarchy. And of course, the fences, we would argue, well, of course, under our normal like U.S. lens here, they need to protect themselves, build a wall. Right. Like all of those things we're used 
refused a hearing. Well, why do they need to protect themselves? Let me be blunt, because everywhere they go, the English were assholes. That's why. If you're not an asshole, you don't need a wall to protect your things. And again, this isn't unique to the English. We go back into all the other ancient civilizations. The sustainable ones and the ones that got along with their neighbors did not build walls. Then you look at a city like Jericho, not nice people. Or the Mykenaeans in Greece, or the Spartans, or whatever, not nice people. They are, of course, societies that are based on hierarchy, exploitation, oftentimes raids. That's what Jamestown was. Jamestown was. That's why they feel like they need this protection. They also feel like they need the protection from, of course, Spanish spies. Um, well, if you don't want to, of course, have to deal with Spanish spies, don't take Spanish land. It's super simple here. It's super simple. Now, again, we'll, we'll get this in a way later episode uh, regarding current wall construction or debate on wall construction. Again, keep in mind, uh, bringing into uh, uh, the modern fold that 55% of Mexico was also annexed by the United States. And of course, the solution now, uh, about a century and a half later, is build a wall. Uh, but again, that's for a future episode. But we see the connection clearly here. James, The people that found Jamestown know what they're doing is at the very very best unethical. And that's one of the reasons these walls have to go up. Then we look at the dwellings inside. Most of them are meant for individuals. Again, these are investors, speculators, bankers, lawyers. Um, there's also, of course, a, a couple of individuals that are going to, in theory, know how to survive. Some hunters, probably some farmers, and so on and so forth. But the vast majority don't. But they are focused on their individualism. Again, something we don't see in Powhatan's village. And this is going to be, again, a clash of cultures, a clash of worldviews, a clash of a clash in ways of doing things. There is no central place to come together, but at the top of the triangle, at the top of the quote-unquote hierarchy, is a larger building than the other buildings. It is a church. No surprise there. This, of course, is uh, King James I, and this is his England and his control of the Anglican church. And they must all pay homage to the hierarchy of his version of monotheism here. And of course, they control much more of the daily lives of the individuals than probably they should. Um, but again, the images are, are, are going to be up at least on the YouTube version of this podcast. So make sure you check those out. And again, you're going to see this is a two completely different ways of doing things. And we can see it just in the way they structured their villages. Um, okay, so let's keep moving here. In fact, actually, before we keep moving, do you have any thoughts on that? Like this this circle versus pyramid way of viewing things. And again, we we do it all the time in the ideology class, but... What do you think as no, a I mean, social think, theorist here? I mean, I think you nailed it that their structure of their society is reflected in not only the way that they live individually in their houses, the way that they structure, like you said, the walls, etc. We could also have a huge commentary on the way that they interact and terraform the land uh, surrounding them. But uh, that would be, you know, we could do hours on that as well. But yeah, I think you nailed it. And that's going to be one of the impressions that's left upon Powhatan and eventually his successors is, look, we welcomed you in, and the first thing you do is rather than, like, join us and be part of what we're doing here is you build fences, you build walls to keep yourself separate. That's going to be a horrible impression. We came and taught, we came and planted corn for you. We taught you how to live. You're not dead. And this is, of course, the repayment. This is a horrible way to uh, basically welcome yourself to someone else's house. Like, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, they, they came in, they kicked their feet up, they took all their beer, right? Ate all their chips. And then, and then, and, and then basically claimed it. They planted their flag. And of course, this is now my beer. These are my chips and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's gross. It's a gross way to doing things. Um, anyway, the other thing that happens is, uh, this is a company. 
And this company is meant to profit. And so in this proto-capitalist economy and basically mentality that is tied to it, their goal is to create growth. In this case, growth of capital. Now, how are they going to do that? Well, in this case, the land itself is going to be that capital. One thing they eventually learn how to uh, grow from the indigenous people is tobacco. We'll spend more time on tobacco in just a second, but tobacco, if we're going to profit from it, You can't always keep growing the same amount of tobacco on the same uh, uh, amount of land or else you're never going to, of course, grow your profit margins. So needless to say, slowly but surely, they're going to want to encroach upon indigenous land so they could grow more tobacco and make more profit, which is going to lead to raids. And even though Pahatan eventually, or or at least initially relented, um, it's going to lead to conflict. The relationship, while he's alive, between Jamestown and, 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 and the indigenous people is amicable. It's not solid. They're not homies. They're not best friends, but it's amicable. But when he passes away and Jamestown settlers begin to encroach upon more and more indigenous land, it leads to eventually resistance. Like, again, you can only take for so much. The British and their mentality at this moment in in time is to be insatiable. Now, again, this is important when we are doing a podcast called Myth is America. Um, We are arguably the most insatiable society that has ever existed in human history. And we can't, we don't have to ask ourselves why we're founded on it. We are not meant to be satisfied. Take, take, take. A mark of your status is how much you can grow and progress and follow this linear trajectory of progress. And then you measure it through, of course, your status. And you can purchase status with what you make through, of course, your exploitation of resources and labor, right? These are things that are clearly built into the British mentality that the indigenous people, they don't understand. We're sustainable. We keep our populations more or less the same. We are sustainable. Everything's in a cycle. Why are you growing merely for the sake of growth? And of course, we know, again, fast forward to 2019, you cannot have infinite growth in an economic system on a finite planet. One of the reasons that so many of these colonizers came is because they exhausted their resources where they came from. In this regard, they are like parasites leaping from one host to another host. Sounds an awful lot like what we are now. Hey, maybe we could terraform Mars. We're parasites. Anyway, we're going to keep going. So I do want to say the argument could be made, like the question could be asked, well, why didn't they like, they came over and they had trouble surviving. The indigenous peoples helped them to figure out how to survive in this land. Well, why didn't they just then realize like, oh, wow, these people do know what they're talking about and have more integration and assimilation with the indigenous peoples? The answer is, Because they were fully infected with the spirit of capitalism already. And they were a company that was there to seek profit. So their mission prevented them from just having this coexistence with the natives and eking out a tiny bit of land for themselves. It required them to be expansionist. And I think that's really important to point out. And, I, and we must stress that it's not just capitalism as the ideology. Their their religion is also expansionist by nature, right? And it is very exclusive by nature. You are either a Anglican or you are not an Anglican. You are either a Christian or you are not a Christian, right? All And again, Christianity by nature is expansion. It is salt the earth, uh, Matthew versus whatever, five through seven, right? Like that. what we have here is this idea to go out and either make more of people that look like yourself or remove or alienate those that do not act or look or 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 speak like yourself. And that's also key to debunk the myth of they were just seeking religious persecution. Because if that was the case, they could have just eked out... They, they were, yeah, so yeah, yeah. They would have just 
got a little bit of land, learned how to survive with the natives, and probably coexisted with the natives peacefully. But it's very clear that that's not what they were seeking. They were not seeking religious freedom. They were seeking profit. Well, and again, it's the religious freedom arguments usually for Plymouth, which will, but it's going to be the same for Plymouth. The same thing's no, going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same thing's going to happen for I Plymouth. I get it all the time because it's like a general, no one, very few people differentiate between like Jamestown and Plymouth, they're all just pilgrims, according to like the basic understanding of American culture. Really, people do that, which is absurd. Yeah. All, all right. the time. All right. I'm I get it in my classes all the time. Yeah, that's what happens in a sociology class, man. <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's keep moving. Okay, so eventually, Palatine successors come along and they get tired of of Jamestown's quote unquote expansive uh, shenanigans, and eventually, some raids begin to happen. And they could have routed them. I'm actually surprised they didn't. In, in, in retrospect, let me be blunt. I would have. I would have pushed them right into the ocean. But they don't. But one of the raids in particular leads to uh, eventually uh, 347 colonist deaths. 347 colonist deaths, um, which is actually a pretty good size amount if we're thinking about the early 1600s here. One of the last trades or last raids took place back in 1622, and it prompted James I at this moment in time, King James I, to officially revoke the charter two years later, the colonial charter he had given to the Virginia Company in 1624, and the colony itself. Virginia becomes a royal colony, no longer completely a privately owned colony, which means, means now basically the crown is the primary investor. Why do you think he made this decision because of these raids? Well, I'm actually going to get on this when we get to the Bacon's Rebellion one too. It was much more than just raids. They were also having financial problems. Okay. The company itself was failing. And that's why the king took over. And we have to keep in mind that that he had give there was some autonomy here. Again, this is the 1600s, so the king cannot oversee everything that's going along, right? Like news travels very slowly across the Atlantic Ocean, so there is autonomy there. They had their own quote unquote representative body, which I know you're going to pick apart in Bacon's Rebellion anyway. But the Virginia House of Burgesses had been established uh, back in 1619 as an electoral body where people, in theory, are representing the will of other Virginians. Um, but of course, there were numerous like barriers to getting into the Virginia House of Burgesses, right? You had to be First and foremost, a white, male, uh, Anglican, wealthy, all of those things were like barriers. So basically, a, even, even among the Virginians themselves, an extreme minority of people were, were, were uh, represented in the House of Burgesses. And all laws that they passed, even before the, the, char- the royal charter, had to be reviewed by King James anyway. So it's – I mean they had some autonomy because, again, there's like real life happening at real time. But whatever they decided would eventually make its way across the Atlantic and he'd have to review all their legislation. Anyway, more and more English end up uh, coming even with the trouble Virginia is experiencing, and that's because of, like, the mass propaganda campaigns that are taking place back in England. Like, James I is fully committed to this colonial project, and and the way that he knows that he can, of course, uh, make sure that it succeeds at least in one way is to continue to force uh, more and more – well, force – course, I think, I think would be the better word – course more and more uh, British citizens to make this tenuous journey. And eventually, of course, continue to encroach upon indigenous land and settle society. And society at this time eventually would be founded uh, based on a cash crop. So just like the Spanish never found their seven cities of gold or whatever, they did find ways to profit from their colonial enterprises. And even if the British didn't find everything they were looking for in Virginia, they found something arguably even better than maybe precious metals. They found tobacco. 
So, of course, we know that indigenous people had been smoking tobacco for various reasons. Uh, they'd also, of course, been doing uh, uh, – they use it, of course, in terms of uh, tributes to various uh, creative essences. Um, but tobacco had a more spiritual use for the indigenous communities. And so, of course, they didn't necessarily – I guess what I'm saying is they didn't commodify it, and that's why it wasn't everywhere. They didn't seek to profit from it. Its use was spiritual. They did teach, of course, uh, the English about tobacco and – uh, naturally, one of the most important things regarding tobacco specifically is that is its addictive properties. And so, of course, as the English that are in Virginia uh, begin to smoke more and more tobacco, they begin to realize, uh, hey, this is something that people could probably uh, get on board with back in um, back in Europe. Now, let's talk real quickly about the idea of a cash crop. Why is a cash crop? problematic at least and then why is it first why is it problematic secondly why is it also wildly profitable it's problematic because you can't consume it you can't eat it you can't live off tobacco so that's a problem once you start monopolizing the land with a cash crop then you very clearly are not growing uh, as much food as you would have before so the more effort that you put into a cash crop, the less effort you have to put forth in your actual survival. Or in this case, cases of colonialization, usually it's the survival of the native peoples. Um, what was the second question? Oh, why is it profitable? Why is it so profitable? So it doesn't even have to be tobacco. We know tobacco has an extra thing. Actually, it doesn't. I was going to say it has an extra thing over sugar, its addictive properties, but actually it doesn't. Sugar is addictive as well. But, but, but let's, besides the addictive properties, why is it so prof- profitable? Because it's cheap to grow, but it's expensive to consume. I mean, there's a deficit between how much it costs. It's cheap to grow if you're using... Indentured servants exactly. or slaves, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's very labor-intensive. And again, here's the key. All of this comes back to this attachment to status. So it's not just that the tobacco itself is addictive. People back in Europe or even in Jamestown itself would be seen smoking be, and that, that smoking in and of itself, which sounds weird in 2019 since we all know how awful it is for us. But in, back in the 17th century, they didn't know that. If you were seen smoking back in Europe in the streets of London or, or Paris or wherever you may be, that was actually a mark of status as well. Not obviously a lot of status, but enough. I have connections. I have enough disposable income that I can use my disposable income to buy this useless, this relatively useless or non-utilitarian product. Not only that, but we also know how drugs work. The more I smoke, the more tolerant I will become and the more I will need to consume to get the same feeling that is attached to it. It is like the perfect cash crop. It's the perfect get-rich scheme. And of course, Jamestown and eventually the other uh, towns that would crop up throughout Virginia were well aware of this. So tobacco society becomes a thing. Now, growing tobacco, at least growing enough to make it profitable, uh, more from just more than just using it for spirituality and using it to become a commodity, requires A, a lot of land, which is going to lead to consistent conflict with the indigenous peoples around uh, Jamestown, but it also requires a lot of work. It is labor-intensive, right? There's processes of girdling, and then, of course, you need to hoe, and then, of course, you need to place the holes, and then you need to plant the seeds, and then you need to harvest, and then, of course, you need to ship. All of those things are labor-intensive, and uh, let me be blunt, the elites in the Virginia company, the primary investors, and the boots on the ground, they sure as shit aren't going to engage in this type of menial labor. They're just here to make wealth. 
So they need to find a way to get workers. Well, the Spanish had, through the encomienda system, if you'll recall from the last episode, basically enslaved indigenous people uh, through the uh, repartimiento. That's not going to work as much for Jamestown, um, based on, of course, different dynamics uh, between these groups different, and, and, and them being different groups. The English are different than the Spanish and the Algonquin speaking people are not the Taino and so on and so forth. But regardless, there are, uh, it's just not going to work. The, and part of it has to do with the disease racking many of these indigenous people right off the bat as well, which again, we can never leave disease off the, or out of the equation when we're talking about this, these colonial enterprises. But anyway, one of the things they ultimately decide that's not only going to help them get their free labor, but help in the colonization process of getting more British people onto the North American continent. Again, you can overwhelm people when they, that's part of the colonization is you are bringing more and more people. You are bringing your culture, your values, your way of life, right? This, just by being here, you are committing ethnic cleansing. Right. We know this. We even see this in like modern day examples, right? In China, right? They continue to bring more and more people to Tibet who does not, that Tibet does for the longest time did not want to be a part of China. Well, one way aside from violence they used to forcefully assimilate Tibet was to bring more and more Han Chinese into Tibet, repopulate with more of their people. Um, well, that's what the English are doing. And even if these are not the elite English, they're poor English, they're still English, which puts them at least a step ahead in the English book of indigenous, uh, people. So this is where we get uh, a servant labor system that comes into being here in Virginia. Uh, most of our listeners are very well aware of indentured servitude. And so some of the amounts I'm going to talk about here, uh, they, they fluctuate over time. But I'm going to give you basically just through numerous uh, across numerous sources, basically averages uh, for some of the figures I'm going to throw out here. First and foremost, early on, as of 1619, Jamestown only had 20 African slaves. So slavery was not going to be a thing that they used initially uh, for labor exploitation because let me be blunt, they were not profitable yet and African slaves were expensive and to be, it was not a good investment. They could not afford African slaves. So they're going to look to, of course, to their own poorest citizens seeking opportunity. And back in England, they have in, embarked on a massive propaganda campaign to motivate English citizens that don't have a lot of opportunity back in England to want to come to North America. And that's actually a lot of people. Uh, London at this moment in time is kind of a shithole unless you are uh, an elite and have that rich hereditary right to elitism. Um, lords, uh, it, yes, I don't even have to dig in. I'm not even going to get into British history at this point. London's not the best place to be if you're poor in the 1600s. We'll leave it at that. So a lot of people would be motivated to want to come here and seek, of course, this endless land of opportunity they've been told about. So to get there, however, if you're already poor, if they're already poor, they don't have any, any way to invest in getting a, cause the voyage isn't free. Like nothing's free. Nothing's free in a mercantilist proto-capitalist system. Nothing's free. You have to pay for everything. How am I going to get there if I am a poor British laborer looking for an opportunity? Well, I can, well, what do I have? I have my labor. I can sell my labor. So ship captains or shippers would eventually create these contracts. Um, and it wouldn't even be brand new. We could tie this to, to prior contracts in, 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 in serfdom. But regardless, these contracts would be updated and, and renewed for this new circumstance. They would create these contracts where essentially, and again, these are averages, would sell a trip across the Atlantic for about five British pounds, right? Of course, the equivalent to sterling. 
Well, the laborer didn't have that, so they, in their mind, are okay with this. It will take me X amount of years, on average three to four years, to work off this five-pound voyage. And so a lot of them uh, felt like this was a, a good opportunity. Yes, I, I will be treated poorly and have to work my ass off for three to four years, but in the end, it will be worth it because there's so much opportunity here. They're painting it this picture that it's wonderful, and once I'm done working on this tobacco plantation, I very quickly after that am probably going to have my own tobacco plantation, and it's going to be dope. That's not necessarily what was going to happen. So they sign up, and of course, the ship captain, he's, of course, uh, uh, beholden to profit as well. He is going to pack as many of these indentured servants on the boat as possible, so the journey itself is going to be shit. It's going to be an awful journey. Many of these laborers aren't even used to going on on these long journeys across the ocean, so they're going to get sick. Many won't even make uh, make the entire trip. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very tenuous situation. Once they do, the ones that survive the, the horrible voyage, again, they're packed. It's cramped. The more, the more indentured servants, the more profit the ship captain's going to make. They are then, of course, sold to already established planters in Virginia. Now, the contract, here's the thing. The ship captain doesn't just, he doesn't make profit. Let's pretend in a perfect world that it actually does. His cost, his sunk cost is actually five pounds. Let's pretend that's what it costs to ship a human across the Atlantic. Well, he needs to profit. He can't just charge them five pounds. So what he's going to do then is eventually double that cost so he can make five pounds profit. So he sells the contract of each indentured servant for, again, this is an average, 10 pounds sterling. So the indentured servant now, who may have been under the impression that he is working off a five-pound uh, 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 contract, is now technically working off a ten-pound contract to the planter. Because the ship captain, he's got more—that's his job. He's going to go back to England. He isn't sticking around. So now the planter owns their labor for ten pounds, and what does that mean? Oftentimes, it can be construed to add years to the labor sentence. Sometimes as many. Sometimes it would go up to seven years in some examples. So, but it's important to point out when you get on the boat as an indentured servant, you have four years, three to four years in your mind. When you get off the boat, all of a sudden it could be up to like seven years, but you have no way of going back. To like your yeah, time. you have no money. You have no pounds. So you are now stuck. Where are you going to go? Now, some did successfully, and this actually happened more than people are willing to admit, run away and be welcomed into indigenous groups. Some ran away and being British and maybe representing British ideals uh, did not get to survive when they enjoy when they tried to join indigenous groups because they were seen obviously at this point as enemies so some 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 got lucky um and did not act a fool when they showed up and some did um but yes that was like your only other option is trying to escape and join an indigenous society uh and and not a lot of people actually wanted to do that because of the conditioning process that that, that it's going to get better fine seven years i'll deal with it okay so Technically, what they were going to be after their contract was up, after these four to seven years of hard labor, is they were going to be free. And eventually, they would get their own little plot of land and build their own tobacco or later on maybe sugar or indigo or rice plantation um, to become wildly profitable, just like the planter society that they were working for. 80% of early labor in Virginia was indentured. But we also, uh, we like to throw in some, some primary sources, and this one, of course, was, was not necessarily found by myself. This one comes from uh, Howard Zinn. He found us a, a source 
1623. This is Richard Freethorne. He was an indentured servant. And this primary source is just, he wrote a letter uh, basically back to his, his mom and dad. He says, loving and kind mother and father is how he addresses this letter. Basically, hey, I'm alive and this is what life is like. So I'm not going to read the whole thing because that, that will probably bore our listeners. But there are some interesting passages here. He starts off by saying, this is to let you understand that I, your child, am in a most heavy case by reason of the country is such that it causes, causeth much sickness as the scurvy and the bloody flux and diverse other diseases which maketh the body very poor and weak. So he shows up and immediately he feels like absolute shit because the journey sucked and he's in a new country and he is also getting sick. This is not a great way to, of course, start your new life in North America and let me be blunt, the planters don't care. They're going to want Richard to immediately get to what? To work. They got profit to make. They don't care how he's feeling. They don't care about scurvy. Get to work. I've got tobacco to grow. This is like the equivalent of your modern day boss requiring a doctor's note for you to like piss Yeah, it it's absolute nonsense. <laughs> I mean, we are a whatever. That's for a different podcast. Yeah. Okay. He then wants to discuss what the experience is like for some of his friends that just got there with him. And, and, and what he comes to, uh, basically this is how he summarizes it, that he and his friends basically, they wish they were back in England. It sucks so bad being in North America that they want to go back to England. This is what he says. Oh, that they were in England without their limbs and would not care to lose any limb to be in England again. Yeah. Though they beg from door to door, for we live in fear of the enemy every hour, yet we have had a combat with them, and we took two alive and made slaves of them. There's two things in this passage that I want to emphasize. First and foremost, life sucks so bad for an indentured servant that they would rather cut off an arm or a leg to get back to England than stay in North America and live with these great founders in Virginia that we're told so much about. That they are such awful, and life is so awful, um... Uh, that they'd rather, they would cut off their arms to go back to England. Second thing that we know is one of the reasons they don't, uh, all run away and join indigenous societies or maybe create their own like commune or something like that is they are scared. They live in fear. They don't just live in fear because of the actual real raids potentially by indigenous societies or by Spanish spies, but because that is what they are told. If you want to control your labor, get them living in fear. This is why we have these large walls and fences around us. And there is always somebody, there is a savage off in the woods that is going to take you away and kill you. There is an insurgent. There is a terrorist. There is a communist. There is a whatever. If you want labor to shut up and get to work, get them living in fear. And we see it from the get-go. I gave those more modern examples because we're still doing this shit. Oh my god, it reminds me. And we're founded on it. What's the movie with um the M. Night Shyamalan movie? The Village? Yeah, The Village. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, dude. It's straight up like The Village. Yeah. God, that movie sucked, but yeah, it is like The Village. <laughs> All right. Anyway, and, and then he goes on, he goes on and he says, and I have nothing to comfort me, nor is there nothing to be gotten here but sickness and death, except in the event, except in the event, one had money to lay out in some things for profit. Most indentured servants got here because they didn't have money. So unless you come with money, your life is going to be impossible impossible. And again, that's not unique. People are starting from different points of departure. Oh, well, the mercantilist proto-capitalist mindset says we all have equal opportunity. Nonsense. It wasn't that way from the get-go. Indentured servants are starting from a completely different point of departure than the original investors in the Virginia company. There was never going to be equality, and it started that way. This story verifies it. 
Um, we'll, we'll stop with Richard Freethorn here so we can kind of keep moving with this idea of indentured servitude. One of the things that also took place is there were very few women that came over as indentured servants, but the ones that did, of course, mostly served in homes. They weren't in the tobacco fields. What does this lead to? If you have young men who aren't feeling good, aren't happy, and as Richard Freethorn just discussed with us, don't feel a lot of comfort, they're going to look for that comfort elsewhere. And they don't, they don't have a lot of their own quote unquote women to, uh, uh, to engage with in any capacity, not just, of course, sexually in any capacity. They'll start looking for it elsewhere. And this leads to interracial mingling with whatever, if there were a few, uh, a few female African slaves there as well, but mostly indigenous women. And this this leads to, of course, more conflict because these indentured servants would enter into these relationships often very violently and against the will of the indigenous women, which, of course, is an affront to indigenous society and lead to more raids by Native Americans. So actually, one of the things that Virginia House of Burgesses uh, passed was that interracial mingling of any kind was outlawed. And we see Nick's going to do it with Bacon's Rebellion regarding specific race, whiteness in this regard. But they started by basically outlawing interracial mingling to do two things. First and foremost, to make sure that there were not new mouths to feed that could not be fed. But secondly, to basically save themselves from having to deal with constant raids. If you're a planter and you're already getting wealthy off what you already own, you're actually kind of done fighting indigenous people because you're already a have. You then have to take on the opportunity cost. Do I want to continue to fight indigenous people if I'm already getting rich? Is it worth my investment to do that? Well, of course not. Just because my indentured servants are going out and getting and raping indigenous people, I don't want to have to put up with that. Like, I'm already profitable. I don't want to have to do that. So, of course, they outlawed uh, intermingling, intermingled, excuse me, racial intermingling, so to speak. Laws were also created by the House of Burgesses to intentionally extend the terms of servants. So what few women actually made the journey as indentured servants? Um, well, one of the things that would get them um, extra years of service is if they somehow accidentally got pregnant. Maybe they did form in a relationship with another indentured servant, or more likely they were uh, accosted by their quote-unquote owner or master. Um, if they ended up getting pregnant, well, that is months and months and months and actually not even months, years on end that they cannot be of full service. So of course, the natural thing we're going to do is add years to your 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 your, serv your your servitude because you're not performing your best for the nine months you're pregnant, nor of course for the years that you're going to be nursing. So it's only natural that you owe us more labor at the end. So they would just extend the terms and laws are created to extend these terms for women. Moreover, uh, women indentured servants were not even allowed to get married for, and I quote, they cannot serve two masters. Oh my God, this says a lot about English common law at the time. Now, we already know they would be considered property of the person that owns their labor contract, but it also shows gender relations at the time that under English common law, if you were married, you were technically property of a husband. So you can't have two masters. You can't have a husband and somebody that owns your labor contract. If we are wondering, if there is anybody wondering uh, why patriarchy remains so grossly prominent in the United States, one need look no further than who we borrowed our views on gender relations from. The English, one of the most grossly patriarchal societies uh, to that point in history, and we carried on the legacy, right? Uh, we'll spend a lot of time regarding, of course, in, in this podcast and hopefully get some guest speakers on, on first, second, third wave feminism. So I'm not going to steal all that thunder right now, but we must understand that this English common law purview is also wildly different 
than the ideology of matrilineal society that existed in North America by the indigenous uh, people here, where matrons were highly respected. They, of course, serve most of the important decision-making processes, and when they didn't, they selected the sachems or the males that would exert the will or represent the will of the people outside of their jurisdiction, right? Like, that is so different. So different. In fact, it's one of the things that, that drove the English crazy is they could not understand why indigenous people always felt the need to consult their matrons on any decision they made. Can we buy this land or can we not? Well, we have to consult the matrons. Oh my God, we would never consult our women on anything. That makes no sense. The English, of course, did not understand this. In fact, oftentimes, that's how the idea of a chief, we use that word now for indigenous leadership, that's how the idea of chief even came into being along the Atlantic seaboard, is these men represented the popular will of the matrons, so they would be the ones that met with Europeans. Well, the Europeans immediately assumed, well, they must just be like us. The guys are calling all the shots, so I just name you chief. You're the first guy to learn English, so you get to make the choices for everybody else, because we don't understand this idea of natural democracy that you have. We live in monarchies. We're idiots. We know no better. You're smarter than us, but we don't think so. Whatever, right? I don't know how the conversation actually went, but it happened over and over and over again. Okay, anyway, back to, of course, indentured servitude. Here's one of the things that was also important. It's not just laws against women. Laws against male indentured servants came into being, and they would create, the Virginia House of Burgesses created more and more laws, not just against like sexual relations, but how you conduct yourself when you be, when you might be walking down the street or when you are conducting uh, your labor or what you can do with your time off, whether you're attending church, all types of different laws were created. And the reason that these laws were created is because if you as an indentured servant happen to break any of those laws, the first solution your first penalty was what? More time. More time. More servant time. More free labor for the wealthy elite. And of course, who gets to create all the laws? The Virginia House of Burgesses. And they're, the wealthy elite are the only ones allowed to be in the Virginia House of Burgesses. It's like a good old boys club, right? And so they continue to create legislation that supports inequality and labor exploitation. This is wildly important. We must keep in mind that laws throughout history Throughout all of, quote-unquote, civilized history, when we, of course, first founded our city-states in Egypt or Mesopotamia or wherever, when we started writing down laws, we weren't writing down laws to protect, of course, the liberties and freedoms of those beneath us. We create laws to oppress and to exploit and to maintain a status quo. Laws are written to make sure society doesn't change ever. And if you're the Virginia House of Burgesses and you've already been here for a decade or two at this point and you found a way to make money off this tobacco thing, you don't want life to change. You don't want more indentured servants to get their freedom and eventually become quote-unquote competition for you. You like having a tobacco monopoly. And so the House of Burgesses begins to abuse its power over the coming decades. Um, which is interesting, uh, for numerous reasons. Eventually, however, the system is going to lead to, uh, some class stratification beyond indentured servants. Eventually, enough indentured servants, whether the, the planters like it or not, the elite planters like it or not, will eventually work off their contracts and be forced to desire land. We call them like the yeoman farmers. They're not like the rich plantation owners, but they have quote-unquote freedom, and they go to get to find their own plots of land and eventually at least earn enough for subsistence, and maybe they could become profitable later. The yeomen are going to be an important class because more and more indentured servants are going to want to become at least the yeoman. It gives them a kind of middle class to aspire to be, even if they never get to be the elite planters. But of course, this requires the most important thing, 
land. If I want to have my own land, I need, well, land. And the planters, now that I'm free, aren't going to give me their land. They're greedy as hell. They're profitable. They're tobacco farmers. They're the worst people. So where else can I get land? Well, the other people that have land that I super want so I can be a yeoman, indigenous people. So at this point, this class stratification that takes place after, of course, many of these indentured servants work off their contracts is going to lead to conflict. And that conflict is going to be directed at two different entities. There are going to be recently freed indentured servants or yeomen that somehow managed to buy their way across the Atlantic but didn't have enough to get a big plantation. They're going to see the elite, the House of Burgesses, as a problem, the upper class. They're also going to see the indigenous, the Native Americans, as a problem because they have what we need because I want to grow tobacco or squash or corn or whatever it is. So they're going to see two enemies. And this leads us to basically one of the more important uh, issues that takes place uh, uh, in the uh, in the 17th century regarding Virginia. And Nick's doing an entire episode, so I'm basically just setting the stage. But eventually we are going to get Bacon's Rebellion out of this in 1676, a full 100 years before uh, the more famous 1776 Rebellion. But regardless, again, we're kind of setting the stage that this class stratification, this conflict with indigenous peoples, uh, this competition for labor, because by the 1670s, uh, African slaves are starting to be used more and more and more often. All of these things are going to like meld together into a very toxic situ- situation that leads to outright rebellion. And again, without stealing too much of Nick's thunder in the next episode, this rebellion would be a landmark event because from this point forward, the English colonists and eventually their American descendants, if they ever had to choose between conflict but that is internal between classes or conflict that they can externalize by vilifying some weird outsider, some awful outsider, some alien outsider, they would always choose from that point forward to distract the population by blaming all of their problems on the outsider. So Bacon's Rebellion is a, is a watershed moment. I'm going to save the rest for Nick. Um, you want to take us out? Give us an outro here? Or do you have any final thoughts before we uh No, I think that we what wrap you said is perfect. And there's going to be a lot of intermeshing of the ideas that you presented here and mine on Bacon's Rebellion. And like I think that what you said is key is this is such a crucial moment in the history of the foundation of the United States, uh, at least at this point, colonial America. And there's a very specific reason why nobody learns about it. Like, you don't get this uh, in much detail, at least the real causes of it and the repression afterwards of the significance of this event in the history of the development of the country that still... Uh, has ramifications up to this day. Well, and we choose to emphasize, like, to, to take this out, because there will be some historians that listen to this and go like, oh, you skip this and you skip this. Well, again, historical narrative is completely subjective, and we're telling the parts of the story that we feel like need emphasizing. Could I have talked about things like uh, 1670s voting rights uh, acts or the 1650 and 51 navigation acts and all of those other important elements that I, again, willfully chose to skip over? Yes, but I willfully chose to skip those over, just like we talked about in the intro episode just like uh, numerous historical checks, uh, texts choose to skip over the story of the oppressed. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I actually will touch on some of those, the voting rights, et cetera, when we do, uh, okay, when well, I do that. Never one, so. mind what I said. I got all tough for no reason. <laughs> Damn it. All right. So that's the end of this episode. 
You can check us out on revolutionandideology.com or Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you want to contact us, you can do that at hello at revolutionandideology.com. Uh, be sure to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also, uh, I'm sorry, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, but we are also on YouTube, so check out our channel and subscribe there. We put all of our episodes on YouTube as well if you'd rather uh, listen there. Uh, so that's it from us this time. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.